0: This is Dina Weiss' For Hadar on Parashat Tetzaveh, Between Economy and Luxury. Parashat Tetzaveh opens with the commandment to illuminate the Mishkan. V'yata, Tetzaveh B'nai Yisrael, V'yikru eylech Hashem en Zayitzach, Katit or Laha'alot ner Tamir. V'ohel mo'ed, Michuts la'parochet, Asher al Ha'edut, Ya Oto Aharon u'vanav, me Ad-Boker, and you shall command B'nai Israel to bring to you pure pressed olive oil for lighting to light a constant lamp. Aaron and his sons should set it outside the divider, which is before the meeting place, from evening to morning, an eternal statute for generations, from B'nai Israel. This light spares no expense and actually serves very little function. It is to be lit constantly. This includes during the night, when no one is serving in the Mishkan, as well as during the day, where natural light could have been used instead. And God insists that the lamp oil is to be of the highest quality, though it is only being used for fuel. Through its golden construction and its costly upkeep, the menorah becomes a focal point for how to understand and think deeply about the economics of the Mishkan. How are we to understand its lavishness and expense? On the one hand, God deserves only the best, but on the other, is the best that we bring to God our material possessions? Is the most expensive way to serve God the only or best way to serve him? In Masechet Menachot, the Mishnah states that each of the seven lights of the menorah used up a half of a log of fine olive oil a day. A three and a half log total. The Gemara later asks how it is that they got to this measure, and in the process contrasts two opposing financial principles that operate throughout the construction of the Mishkan and the service within it. safra. Iga Amar milamata Manda amar milamata le'mala HaTorah amamonam milamala ashirut. And the sages measured the half-log that would be sufficient to burn from night until morning. There are those who say that they measured by increasing the amount of oil each time they ran the experiment. And there are those who say that they measured by decreasing the amount. The position that says that they measured by increasing employed the principle of, the Torah spared the money of Israel. And the position that says that they measured in decreasing amounts, employed the principle of, there is no poverty in the place of wealth. This dispute in Menachot is not a dispute about the law. The quantity of oil is unanimously agreed upon. The dispute here is about the process, about the proper way to assess how much oil was needed. Do we want to start cautiously, with the smallest amount of oil increasing with each iteration so as not to waste the money of the Jewish people, or do we want to spend lavishly? Overestimating the amount of oil necessary because this experiment is important and we do not want to be stingy. Both of these impulses are present in the laws of the Mishkan and later the temple and its service. On the one hand, the daily incense offering was prepared in relatively inexpensive silver vessels and then poured into gold in deference to the principle that God and the Torah are sensitive to the finances of Israel and therefore do not want them to be constantly ruining and replacing expensive gold instruments. On the other hand, Rav Achabar Yaakov says that when the dyes were prepared for the Mishkan's curtains, they were made in generous amounts that exceeded how much was needed since there is no poverty in the place of wealth. And in the work of the Mishkan, there was no concern about waste. Many have suggested different ways to account for why the principle of frugality applies in some cases, while the tendency towards lavishness and even wastefulness applies in other cases attempting to find a systematic rule of thumb for explaining why each rule would apply in each case. However, the fact that both of these tendencies exist side by side and can be difficult to coherently disentangle from one another is a lesson in and of itself. Sometimes the right approach is to spend, and sometimes the right approach is to scrimp and save. Sometimes the Torah asks us to invest, and sometimes the Torah has compassion on us and our often meager means. One way of bridging these two principles is to understand them entirely in terms of budgeting. I need to save in order to spend later, and if I keep on spending, I'll eventually need to save. However, this explanation privileges spending and assumes that there is no inherent value to the self-discipline that frugality requires and the modesty that frugality displays. Yet this is what the Mishnah in Avot valorizes when it talks about the simple life that a Torah scholar lives. This is the way of the Torah. Eat bread and salt and drink water in measured amounts. Sleep on the ground and live a life of difficulty and labor in the Torah. If you do so, you are fortunate and it is good for you. Ashrecha v'tovlach. You are fortunate in this world and it will be good for you in the world to come. On the one hand, this Mishnah clearly promises an eternal award. There will be good that comes to you and is saved for you in the afterlife. On the other hand, the Mishnah articulates the life of living on the bare necessities as being the way of the Torah. This in and of itself makes you fortunate and praiseworthy in this world. The Mishnah views the life without luxury as being inherently valuable. This is one way of interpreting the Torah's statement that despite the Torah's efforts to redistribute wealth and to keep families on their ancestral homelands, there will always be poor people. For impoverishment will not cease from the midst of the land. Therefore I command you saying, open up your hand to your brother. You're poor and you're impoverished in your land. God sees that it is difficult to be poor, and he wants to alleviate the suffering of the poor. But, he does not try to erase poverty and poor people entirely. He does not want to make Israel into a wealthy nation. In fact, Moshe prophecies that should Israel become too wealthy, they might turn their backs on God. Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and wide and coarse. He abandoned the God who made him and spurned the rock of his salvation. It seems then that the wealthy and the poor are in a mutualistic relationship. The poor teach the wealthy humility, and the wealthy teach the poor generosity. Being wealthy can limit our empathy and modesty, but being poor can limit our capacity to do good in and truly appreciate this world. This understanding is reflected in a saying of Rabbi Elai: I'm a Rabbi Elai?" A person is known by three things. Their drink, their wallet, and their anger. Rabbi Elai says that a person's character is reflected in how they act when under the influence of alcohol, or by their choice to drink more or less, how a person spends their money, and how a person acts when they are angry, or by what makes them angry. What Rabbi Elai does not say is that a person should not drink, should not have money, or should not be poor, or should never get angry. Everyone has a different temperature, a different temper, and a different financial situation. What is important is how you manage what you have. One of the most central lessons of having a role for wealth and a place for poverty in God's home is that neither wealth nor poverty is assigned a moral value. Both are reflections of the way that we live. Both are paths that we can trod to serve God. We're not always placed on the path that we prefer, but neither is inherently more spiritually worthwhile. As humans, we feel uncomfortable with this asymmetry that we rightly acknowledge as unfair. We can and should work towards bridging the gap between those who have more financial capital and those who have left. However, it is important that we not assign moral value where it doesn't belong. Rich people do not deserve to be rich, and poor people do not deserve to be poor. In Bava Batra, the Roman governor Tineus Rufus, Rabbi Akiva's tormentor and interlocutor, adopts this wrong approach. elasha Rufus at Rabbi Akiva. Im ohev ma Tineus Rufus asked this of Rabbi Akiva. If your God loves the poor, why doesn't He provide for them? Amarlo, Rabbi Akiva said to him, "K'deshen Sol anubahem midinashal gehinum, so that we can be saved through them from the judgment of hell." Amarlo, Ad zo shemachayav tem legehinum emshol chamashal lemahat davar domeh basar vadam shekaas alavdo vachavashol bevet haasurim. Vitiva al Dineas Rufus said to him, to the contrary, this that is supporting the poor, is what is condemning you to hell. I will construct a parable for you. To what is this analogous? to a human king who was angry at his servant and imprisoned him and commanded regarding him that no one give him food or drink. One person came and gave him food and drink. When the king hears, won't he be angry? And you are called servants. As it says, B'nai Yisrael are my, that is God's, servants. Rabbi Akiva said to him, I will construct a parable for you. To what is this analogous? To a human king who was angry at his son, and imprisoned him and commanded regarding him that no one give him food or drink. One person came and gave him food and drink. When the king hears, won't he send him a gift? And we are called children. Ve'anu kur'yim banim. Amar, banim atem ladonai You are children to Hashem your God. Tineus Rufus has a particular way of explaining evil in this world that allows him to justify why there are poor and suffering people. They deserve it because God is angry at them. Therefore, giving charity or helping someone impoverished in any other way contradicts God's command, his punishment of this person. In his parable, Tinius Rufus thinks of the poor person as a servant or slave who the king does not care about and thinks of only in terms of his instrumental value. Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, sees everyone rich and poor as being God's children he sees the poor person as unfortunate, not as morally inferior. And though his response frames the function of the poor person as being somewhat instrumental, a needy individual provides an opportunity for a rich person to be saved from hell, there is a subtle implication here that Rabbi Akiva, as a formerly impoverished person, is making. He teaches that wealthy people are not inherently good and therefore wealthy. If they were wealthy because they were righteous, then they would not need anyone to save them from hell. Their virtue alone would save them. Clearly, then, the rich aren't automatically virtuous, and the poor necessarily blameworthy, or the contrary. The Mishkan's ability to have the principle of no poverty in the place of wealth, Ein aliyut Bimakom ashirut, exists side-by-side with cost-saving measures, like the sliding scale Olevio raid offering, teaches us not only that both wealth and poverty, rich and poor, can coexist, but also that they can do so in close proximity to one another. In a socioeconomically stratified society, the poor live next to and associate with other poor people, and the wealthy socialize only with people who have similar means. This prevents the poor and the rich from supporting and educating one another. The anonymous text of Musar, the Orchot Tzaddikim, warns against this physical isolation, which he classifies as a type of physical haughtiness. According to him, there are a number of ways to demonstrate pride, ge'ava, in the body. And he distinguishes between a positive way of demonstrating pride and a negative way of demonstrating pride. And in the bad way, An arrogant person isolates themselves. Pride, in the ears, he doesn't hear the words of the downtrodden poor, of the sense of smell. When he stands next to the poor, enters their home, they are disgusting in his eyes. According to the Orchot Sadikim, it is critical for the moral development of the wealthy that they don't look down on the poor and critically do not distance themselves from those who they think are less refined than they are. These two strands are also within us. Are we willing to acknowledge our wealth and spend money when we can and should? Or are we always scrimping and saving? Are we willing to invest in what matters? And do we think consciously about living modestly? may be beneath our means, displaying the virtue of the poor. God wants the Mishkan to be beautiful, and this will only happen if respect for wealth and those who have it is shown. But God also wants his house to be inviting and welcoming to all, including those whose means do not allow them to spend lavishly. God invites the wealthy to contribute their wealth and the poor to contribute their poverty. Each can worship God with who they are, and what they have, and benefit from the contributions and example of people who are not like them. Wishing you a Shabbat of opulence and simplicity. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Devray Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.